Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. Uh, these first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. Uh, the What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, uh, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc., so what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, uh, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Parker Lewis, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Great to be here. Good to, good to be in Nashville and good to be at Bitcoin Park for the first time. Yeah, man, it's great to have you here. Uh, we're here for a Bitcoin Energy and Mining Summit. Um, and Bitcoin Park is a co-working slash event space that Rod, Nodell, and a few guys have set up. Um, so if you guys haven't been audience, come and check it out. Yeah, it's definitely worth it. Yes. Um, so we wanted to do a quick rip today. You wrote a new piece. Gradually then suddenly number 18. Can't believe you've written so many of them. Um, it's been what? Three, three years you've been writing these things? It's been, yeah, I, I think I, the first time I wrote, uh, was July of 2019. So two and a half years, um, or no, over three years. Yeah. Yeah. On, yeah. Math a little bit poor, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I wrote and kind of just took a life of its own July and I wrote over 18 months. I wrote 17 and the last one was, uh, Bitcoin is the great definancialization, which was December of 2020. And mm -hmm. I contributed that to the Bitcoin times okay. and then, um, decided to redevote some of my time to writing and, uh, I always just had a philosophy of I'm not going to write just to write, but if there's something that I feel like is fundamental or important that I'll write about it. Yeah. And, um, over the last 12 months, everything that's been happening in the world, uh, this is an idea that I've been kind of sitting on. And it's also the most common question that I've gotten over the last 12 months of like, yeah. if Bitcoin's supposed to be an inflation hedge and there's inflation, why is Bitcoin going down? 
And so that was the, the spawning of the Bitcoin is not a hedge to kind of explain what's happening in the, in the dollar system and then why Bitcoin really can't fundamentally be a hedge. Yeah, no, I've received that question a lot as well. And I think for, from an outsider's perspective, it's a fair question, but it does betray kind of a misunderstanding of how markets work and, and whatnot. Um, so I guess we could start there. Like what, how do you, what is a hedge? Like that, that might that term alone might be foreign to some people, and then in what ways is Bitcoin not necessarily a hedge against inflation, but I think as you argue in the piece, it's actually a solution to inflation. Yeah. So I think in in a traditional sense, uh, and there's a few different flavors of hedge, but it's essentially you know people have heard of hedge funds, and realistically, hedge funds don't just hedge risk; mm-hmm. they just different class of investing, but. In a, in a traditional sense, a hedge is hedging some risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the way that I think about that is it is reducing some future uncertainty. Um, it, if I'm an oil producer and I'm producing barrels of oil and there's an oil future, I might, um, I might purchase or sell a future mm-hmm. um, to basically forward sell my demand. I'm reducing my future uncertainty. Um, by locking in a price at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Generally, inflation hedges are designed to reduce the risk of the dollar losing its purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Historically, it's been gold, um, other commodities, real estate, more recently, uh, which is kind of crazy, diversified equity portfolios. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone has generally been conditioned to know that the dollar loses value. How do I offset that? And that the way I relate that to Bitcoin is in in the traditional sense or the classical definition of a hedge, Bitcoin would meet that definition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that Bitcoin's not a hedge like gold is, and it's not a hedge like real estate is. It's actually engineered to be the replacement for the dollar. Mm-hmm. And that there that when I distinguish between when I was writing this piece, I sat down with Marty and um, it's like, am I being pedantic? And I was like, no, I'm not being pedantic. And I really stress tested that because I think some people could look at it as like, well, if it meets the traditional definition, um, but gold is not a solution to the dollar. The dollar was a solution to gold Mm -hmm. and was proving of why gold failed. Um, Real estate is not the solution to the dollar. We need a better form of money. Mm -hmm. And so because it's actually the replacement to the dollar and that it can facilitate commerce on a direct basis, that's one part of it not being a hedge, but the other more fundamental thing is that if someone doesn't understand Bitcoin, it can't be a tool that they can use. Mm. And if they understand Bitcoin, then they will start to understand that it actually is a replacement to the dollar and they won't be treating it like just a vehicle to get more dollars, mm-hmm. which is what traditional inflation hedges are. I'm, I'm owning gold, people don't actually want the gold, they just want if the dollar loses purchasing power relative to gold to get more dollars to buy things, to get mm-hmm. back into the dollar and at the end of the day, the dollar's going away. Bitcoin's the solution to that. As people figure that out, they do not treat Bitcoin as a hedge. And you, practically speaking, can't be in between for any sustainable period of time. You yeah. either understand it or you don't. Yeah, it's a great point. There's a real, uh, I guess, frame shift where you go from denominating things in dollars. When you get deep enough into Bitcoin, you understand that it's more about accumulating more Bitcoin yeah. rather than trying to get into Bitcoin, then get out at a higher dollar price point to accumulate more dollars because Bitcoin's actually the solution. And so 
is it the it's the counterparty risk inside the dollar basically right the fact that they're being depreciated by the central bank that is the fundamental flaw that's when we talk about inflation i know when i when i talk about inflation i'm talking about the arbitrary debasement of the dollar yeah i think you are as well not typically price inflation yeah and so this isn't bitcoin's not a hedge in the sense that we're trying to remove the uncertainty of dollar uh, depreciation, but you're actually trying to exit the instrument entirely that is being depreciated. Right. So therefore, it's a solution, not a hedge. Yeah, and that, that, that that's exactly how I think about it. Like yeah. you are you are exiting that system, and you are exiting that to, to different degrees, or to to you know, depending on the extent to which you, you know, everyone still needs dollars. Yeah. Right. In the in the dollar economy, you want to go down to the grocery store that won't always be the case. And like you said, I'm not, I'm not eliminating the, the fluctuating uncertainty of the dollar via Bitcoin, even though some people might use it that way. It's like, I know that Bitcoin is a better form of money yes. and everybody else is going to figure that out. And in the future, I'm gonna need Bitcoin to go buy gas at the right. gas station and food at the grocery store. And there is a big, very big difference of trading Bitcoin to get more dollars versus recognizing that Bitcoin is a better form of money and if I'm going to want to trade with other people that are delivering goods and services to the market, I'm going to need that form of money. Right. Um, and so, I, like, I, I do think that is a very fundamental distinction um, and that people figure, that's like when the light bulb goes off, and I think that part of it is like, if, I, if, any, if you canvass your group of friends or your network of people, not more than one out of 100 people understand that Bitcoin is a better form of money. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a conservative. Like, maybe it's still one in a thousand. Because they don't understand money, largely, right? Yeah. yeah. They don't understand money. And, and, and money's hard to understand. Mm -hmm. I like to say that's the hardest thing to understand about Bitcoin. It has very little to do with Bitcoin, mm -hmm. everything to do about what money is. But Absolutely. if people accept that no more than one out of 100 people really grok Bitcoin, and it's probably, realistically, no more than one in a thousand, mm -hmm. then to say it's a hedge to inflation if 999 out of a thousand people do not understand something and then inflation appears, you cannot expect everyone just to like herd over to that point. Right. That it's a process of understanding that yeah. question. The definition of your show was money. Mm -hmm. um, and inflation. People don't really know right. what that is. Yeah. But that is, it's like, you know, and to your, to your question, I, cause I, I think, I, I think about it the same way. It is the counterparty risk, the, the, tr the problem of trust. Mm-hmm like inherently, like, cause counterparty risk can be thought of is like, what is somebody that owes, that I have a contract with, are they gonna perform? Yeah. Um, but in the Fed's world, because they can arbitrarily create money, it is a trust-based system. Mm -hmm. um, and that is inherently at odds with independent people throughout an economy relying on a form of money and having to have trust mm. in a few group of people who have maximum control. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't, I, I talk about some in the piece, but that, that is the core distinction. It's like fixed money supply, in, you know, ever increasing debasement, but it's also trust-based system, trustless system. And the only way we get this world where we can have a solution to inflation is it being trustless and not having to put trust into anybody else because not just that that trust has been broken, but there is an inherent problem with a trusted model when it comes to your money. Absolutely. Yeah, that's another term that seems to trip people up because trustless sounds almost like a negative thing, like you'd want a high trust system, but 
in fact, I guess it's a little bit counterintuitive, but you want a system where you have to trust as few people as possible, right? You would rather trust mathematics, uh, thermodynamics, you know, uh, as an elliptic curve cryptography in the case of Bitcoin versus inside the Federal Reserve System, you're trusting what? We don't even know, right? We don't really know the criteria by which they're deciding dollar production. I, what is it? Seven governors basically deciding what to do. They do it behind closed doors. Um, I don't even think we have clear line of sight on who the shareholders of the central bank are. Yeah, so there's this, it's a black box effectively. Yeah. And it's susceptible to human emotions. Yeah. Um, like Political capture. It doesn't really matter why they create new money or when. We just know that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, we generally understand why they do it. Um, and that, you know, kind of that idea, the way I would describe that trustlessness is that you can, uh, not you can, but like anyone who adopts Bitcoin comes to trust the enforcement of its monetary policy because it is trustless. Mm -hmm. So the system as a whole is very trusted because it's devoid of trust in any one individual, any institution, no one is in control. And that, that really becomes the only model you can trust when it comes to how money is is created or what the issuance schedule is. If anyone, like like if you did the thought experiment, if any individual was in control of the money supply, it's not just that it's the Fed. Mm-hmm. Pick another 12 people, create mm-hmm. another institution. If anyone is in control, the urge to print money is so great that they will. Yes. And that I, I agree with you that when they say like trustless, like we've come to trust institutions, not only has that trust been broken, but that when people start to contemplate this question of what is money and what would make a better or worse form of money or how mm. how could I have a form of money and if, if a limited supply is, is important, how could I actually come to rely on a system to um, consistently or reliably deliver on a promise of mm. a fixed supply? The only way to achieve that is if no one is in control. And so right. when we say trustless, it means like, I don't have to trust you, yeah. I don't have to trust me, I don't right. have to trust them but the system as a whole can be trusted because of that reason that no one's in control. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's the system that is devoid, most devoid of counterparty risk becomes the most trusted system. Yeah. And that's kind of what gold was historically, right? No one could change its issuance schedule, no matter how hard we tried to mine it, find it, et cetera. Um, And I like the way you describe counterparty risk where it's, when you have a contractual relationship with someone, what's the probability they're going to perform effectively? And I think that's a good framing for the dollar system. Like the dollar was originally a contract to gold, right? That's what it was. It yeah. represented. Come a, back and you'll get X number of ounces of gold if you bring X number of dollars. Yes, and that that contract was gradually violated through fractional reserve banking system, the fractional reserve banking system and then finally and ultimately severed in 1971 in the US. So the problem with this monetary system is that it's so rife with counterparty risk because we've it's it's violated the original intent of its contract. Is, is that a useful yeah. way to think about this? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, um, I might be wrong about the specifics, but I'll be right about the order of magnitude. Like um, in 1913, I think gold was convertible for $20. Mm-hmm. Like, you bring $20 to the bank, you get one ounce of gold. Ounce of gold. Yeah. Uh, in 1933, banned private ownership of gold, FDR, mm-hmm. uh, 6102. And then the next year in 1934, they say, uh, 
you want an ounce of gold, you got to bring $35. Right. You know, so like that, like you could think about, because like, you know, we can debate kind of fractional reserve, like maybe the system was insolvent and needed to be bailed out. But like that was the sudden probably um, counterparty failure. Yes. You know, like right. I put my ounce of gold in and I got $20 out. You told me if I brought the 20 back, I could get an ounce of mm-hmm. gold. And now you just by fiat say, you need to bring 35 of these dollars to get an ounce of gold, yeah. which really means that if I bring my $20 back, I get 75% you know, haircut. Yeah. yeah. I don't get an ounce of gold back. Yeah. You know, that, that was the, that was like the sudden counterparty failure. And then it just degraded, Yes. you know, incrementally from there to where they basically said, Oh, he can't come get your gold back in, at all. Yes. Yeah. That was, so that was like, yes. the, that was the ultimate flatlining of the, the counterparty failure. But um, right. Yeah. And yeah. then once you can't redeem the dollar for anything, we get into this fiat conundrum where we're just expanding the dollar supply ad infinitum and I think maybe a useful way there to think about it is the inflation that we're seeing in the real economy, the price inflation, let's say, this is just the economic consequence of government undergoing a slow motion default, right? They're basically deficit spending, so they're spending more than they're bringing in, and they're covering the difference with printing money. And when you print money, they're just externalizing the cost of that printing onto productive market actors. Yeah. So it's it all comes, like you could really bring it all back to contract theory in a way. It's like the dollar was supposed to be redeemable for gold. All the gold was confiscated. They revalued the gold in terms of dollars. They eventually suspend convertibility. And now we have this funny money monopoly currency. Yeah, that you can create at no cost. Yes. And I think, you know, kind of like on that lines of thinking about around contracts, like the dollar or the money, the, that contract was broken. But then the contract that yet hasn't yet been broken is I have a U.S. Treasury mm. and, you know, it the par value is X. Well, the only way that that contract has not been broken is because they continue to break the contract in the dollar. Right. right. Print more because otherwise, if they weren't printing money, the, the U.S. government would default. Yes. Right. Um, and so I think that and it, and it ultimately is tied back to that there is too much debt in the system and in order for the entire credit system to collapse, which is the, which is now the Fed's monetary system. It's not tied to any commodity. Mm. It is anchored to the real world versus debt and, and the, the productive assets that sit behind that debt or that the debt has claims on. But that is also what guarantees that the money gets printed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And and uh, if anyone looks at that problem, they they will come away with the conclusion, I need a solution to it. Mm-hmm. And the only possible solution to a money that is broken, that that is structurally broken, is destined to go the way of the dodo bird, mm-hmm. or to, you know, like every currency fails the same way, mm-hmm. but everyone needs money. Yeah. It has to be another better form of money, and there isn't some place in between. Yes. You know, it's like, hey, if I just have real estate, does that solve the problem if my money breaks and no longer works. It's like, no, I still need a new form of money. Yes. And that is ultimately kind of that, that kind of connection to Bitcoin being the solution. Yes, definitely. And I guess, I mean, to bring it back to this concept of, of a hedge, right? That's actually the removal or at least mitigation of risk in the future. That's another way to frame money, right? It's a, it's a hedge against uncertainty, right? You, the reason we hold I think Mises makes this point. The reason you hold cash balances is because we live in an uncertain world, right? If we lived in the evenly rotating economy, 
where you knew everything that would happen, you would never need to hold cash. Cause you yeah. could, whatever you lent out, you could align that, you could align the term, maturity term of that with the expenditures you need to make and you never need to hold cash, you just hold assets. So to the degree that the world is uncertain is somewhat the degree to which we need money basically. And when we're printing money, we're actually, cre it's an oxymoron in a way, because we're creating more uncertainty in the dollar system, right? As they yeah. print more dollars. So. Yeah, I think that that, that is interesting. I think that um, I, I, I believe that like, or my thoughts are, are consistent with that, which is that money, money itself reduces future mm -hmm. uncertainty. Um, and you know, from a fundamental perspective, it does that because it's the good that everyone needs. Mm -hmm. Everyone has their own needs and wants. Um, and if all value is subjective, which it is, that people put different value on even the same thing, mm -hmm. how much a person likes a boat or a house or, um, you know, a stake. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so because everybody has their own needs and wants and values those things differently, everyone needs a way to trade. So everyone, the common thing that everyone has to demand is money mm -hmm. in order to be able to get those needs and wants. And because it is the, the good that is most necessary to the functioning of the economic system, mm -hmm. that, is, that is the fundamental reason why it reduces uncertainty. Mm -hmm. This good is demanded by everybody. So I will be able to convert it into the widest range of things at any point in time versus, you know, if I like a collectible, like a signed helmet by the, mm -hmm. you know, the quarterback of the Tennessee Titans, there's only a limited subset of people that will, that will put a similar value on that. And if I need food, it's gonna be hard to sell that mm -hmm. easily. So I do I do kind of think about that generally as like that consistent theme of like money reduces future uncertainty. It does so given the nature of the problem that it solves. Right, absolutely. But we are undermining the entire purpose yeah. of money through fee because you're, yeah. like the short term dollar has been great for preserving purchasing power in this little two year interim period, but Again, when you zoom out, you see that it's being, you can't use it as a long-term store of value. So people get forced into the situations you described earlier, like going out further along the risk curve and equities and other things just to try and preserve purchasing power. And this whole, that whole dynamic, I guess, is of having fiat currency or debt-based money, it's actually destroying the actual purpose of money ultimately, which is that that hedge against uncertainty. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> and I give a company some money in case shit happens. <laughs> now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. 
Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, -A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. I also talk about it in the piece where it's that if money is helping to fundamentally solve a problem of trade, or help to facilitate trade or make trade more efficient, then um, kind of thinking about it along those lines is that when they print money, like when, and consistent with this concept of like, rather than reducing future uncertainty, they're increasing mm -hmm. future uncertainty, mm -hmm. is because the function of that printing of money is actually impairing the money's ability to coordinate trade. Mm -hmm. It's manipulating right. every price that exists. It's manipulating the root of the coordination function. So I like the way I would uh, the way I would I would kind of frame that is by printing money, they're impairing the coordination engine or the ability of that money to foot to, to coordinate trade. Mm -hmm. The output of that impairment is greater future uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The money no longer works as well right. um, because a blunt force object continues to hit it over the head again right. and again and and everyone ha is trying to escape it. Yes. You know, and and as they do that, they go for like, you know, like the, the point about um, using an uh, equity instrument when yeah. it's not really what they're looking for. They don't know that it's not what they're looking for. They're just trying to outpace a problem that they have and they're actually... You're, you're giving you're basically being given enough rope to hang yourself mm -hmm. what you really ha have to find is something that permanently solves that mm -hmm. right it's like 
you know, like everyone's chasing away from it. It's like you're running away from a bear mm -hmm. rather than turning around and fighting. Right, right, yeah. And it's so many people are in that conundrum where you're just trying to preserve purchasing power across time. But because of the counterparty risk that's in the dollar, right, it's being printed, that taxation is being imposed upon you, right, in the form of price yeah. inflation, that if you want to just stay even on purchasing power, you now have to go take risk you otherwise wouldn't, whether right. you're in equities or whatever it may be. So this whole thing, like it's it's very contagious, right? Like once you put this um, like risk in the money, this unnecessary risk in the money, it starts to percolate out into the actual buying and selling decisions of market actors using the money. And ultimately is driving them, like you said, people want to escape that, right? People, if you framed it that way, inflation is taxation, well, people want to minimize taxation. So obviously you're gonna look for the money that taxes you least in that way. Yeah, and I think like that, um, that idea of money inherently, or if you have a good form of money, mm -hmm. everything exists on a spectrum, money should not be a risk. Yes. You are introducing risk to, you know, like, and one of the things I talk about in pieces is people talk about a risk-free rate. Nothing, nothing is risk-free. Mm -hmm. Everything's fluctuating always. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and risk can only really be thought of as on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so the least uncertain is the least risky, but it doesn't mean that that even least risky good in the market, which is money, uh, isn't, isn't subject to change. Right and that it can't lose purchasing power over some interim period of time, but if it has the right credible properties mm -hmm. over any, you know, beyond very short period of time, it will preserve purchasing power. But that when you introduce risk to the, the asset that is supposed to be the least risky, mm -hmm. then everything reverberates from there. Mm -hmm. If the, the, if the money, which isn't supposed to bear risk, which is, and, and, and so what I talk about in a pr prior piece, Bitcoin's great definancialization, is that there is a fundamental difference, and language matters, but there's a fundamental difference between investing and taking risk and That's putting serious. money at risk with yeah. the hope of, uh, of accumulating capital mm -hmm. and savings. Mm -hmm. Those two things have been completely um, confused and conflated, mm -hmm. and it has happened because we've introduced, and when I say we, the way that our current monetary system is controlled by the Fed works is that risk to what should be the, the savings asset that should preserve its purchasing power, we introduce, as you, as you put it, we introduce risk by massive debasement, mm -hmm. which is inherently taxing whatever, whatever I've produced in the past because it's a series of points. One year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, whatever I've saved to the future, mm. it's been earned at periods of the past. And at some point when I'm you know, 80, 90 years old and I can't, I can no longer produce, I need that money that I produced when I was 20 years old or 30 years old right. or 40 years old to purchase me the things I still need to sustain myself when I can't produce. Yes. And, and, and so for that short period of time, it might work two years, but we think in decades and lives, mm -hmm. generations, it's like that doesn't work. Yes. Um, yeah, no, the, the, the delineation between savings and investment is so important because as you said, investment is when you're, you're risk seeking, right? You're actually looking to take calculated risk to create returns on capital. But savings is where you're trying to take as little risk as possible just to preserve 
whatever capital or purchasing power you've already accumulated in that that risky market process, you want to you want to exit that process as much as possible. Right. And when when they start printing money and debasing it, it's basically someone puts a gun to your head and says, take risk or you're going to lose either way. Right. And when 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 it's a a lose lose situation and everyone is forced into taking risk rather than Mm -hmm. being intentional and doing it for for the actual desire to um, like you know, ultimately I think about it as I'm going to be intentional about taking a risk to accumulate capital Mm -hmm. and, and that yes, there, there's a chance that I don't make money back, but if I deliver value and it might be in the form of, you know, a different way to manufacture some Mm -hmm. good or to introduce a new good to the market that you actually accumulate more capital and then, and then at the end of that day, get more money back. But that if everyone is um, being forced to take risk, that otherwise would not want to, if they right. just had a form of money that maintained purchasing power, um, you that's when you start to get massive malinvestment. It's very difficult to say like, uh, that's malinvestment and that's not, yeah. but a whole society that's been um, conditioned to know that their money loses value and that they shouldn't hold cash because the dollars mm-hmm. in their bank account aren't gonna purchase more in the future, like you know malinvestment or you know when someone is is putting money at risk that otherwise wouldn't be mm-hmm. uh, when you see it. Yeah, and it might be a gray area, but yeah, and I, it's doubly pernicious, right? Because not only are you putting that proverbial gun to their head, saying, "Hey, you need to take risk, otherwise you're just going to lose purchasing power because we're printing money," but when you start to engage in that risk-taking entrepreneurial process your point earlier, you can't depend on the price signals as well. So you're, you're less likely to succeed to succeed at entrepreneurial activities because you can't trust yeah. the actual pricing of capital goods, inputs and outputs to your business. Completely. So yeah. it's it's very pernicious. Um, it's I think it's hard to overstate almost how systemically catastrophic this is. When you start messing with the money, especially monopolizing it by fiat and disconnecting it from gold and all economic reality, like the the cascade of consequences is damn near universal. Yeah, and the way I usually, uh, because I think that is the most important fundamental concept that it's like, and the tangible example I'll give is is real estate. Mm -hmm. Right now, if you look at real estate prices in Austin, it's like, like, this can only, well, it's not only, this can only exist, this only exists because the Fed has manipulated Mm -hmm. interest rates for so long. But what happens is someone looks at those price signals, and I'm using an extreme because if you look in like downtown Austin, it's like there's not a home under a million dollars. You're like, what? Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but a bunch of people look at that and they say, I'm gonna go train myself to be a real estate broker. Mm-hmm. Like, the right. the price signal is being sent, or I'm gonna go tra- train myself to be a builder. I need to build more of these homes. Mm-hmm. And then the bottom falls out because the price signal has been disordered. And what that means is you have a bunch of people that have allocated their time and energy to train themselves mm-hmm. with a, a skill that cannot be sustained by actual market demand. Right. And that is that point that you're talking about, like that it becomes harder to be an entrepreneur as the money gets distorted because what functionally happens is 10 years down the line, you've trained yourself for a skill and then it goes away and you're yeah. like, holy shit, what right. do I do now? Right. Because very difficult to to adapt when you've when you've gotten very far beyond your ability to, to train yourself for a new set of skills, 100%. or or when the market 
you know, it's what happened in the financial crisis, mass displacement of labor. Yes. Um, because because price signals have been just distorted for so long. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So if money then is meant to be this hedge against uncertainty to some extent, um, it would seem to me, I mean, it seems almost intuitive that the most predictable or the most certain money wins, certain meaning certain in terms of credibility of its monetary properties. Yeah, and that's also what I talk about in the piece where it's like, you know, um, if if hedges typically reduce future uncertainty, that, and it and if uncertainty exists on a spectrum, like tomorrow's more known than, than a week from now mm-hmm. or a month from mm-hmm. now or a year from now, um, that Bitcoin is not uncertain like how many iPhones is Apple going to sell in a month, and which is dependent on how many people are gonna demand iPhones or phones at all or different phones. Mm-hmm. But Bitcoin on the spectrum of certain and uncertainty, it is knowable. Mm-hmm. And I think that the challenge is that most people don't know where to start or don't understand the um, the kind of the, the logic or the, the places to focus. And in the piece I talk about, if A, then B. If Bitcoin credibly enforces a fixed supply of 21 million, then it will be the least uncertain good in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, the first part is understanding that that's the fulcrum. Yeah. And then the second part is understanding, is it possible? Mm-hmm. Is it probable? Like, is it, is there a framework to be able to look in that and say, it's either noble or not? Most people either say it's not noble or they think that if they attempt to understand it, that they won't be able to know it. Right. Um, but that doesn't not make Bitcoin unknowable, that there is a, a finite surface area you have to know where to focus energy and then you have to develop a framework and then you need to understand the causal relationship of if everyone will gravitate to the, to the least uncertain form of money, the form of money that most credibly has um, the, the most finite supply, if that good can also be sent to anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and buy gas and be able to facilitate commerce on a direct basis, everyone's going to gravitate to that least uncertain good. And that, that yeah. really is what makes Bitcoin noble. It is why Bitcoin is not a hedge, it's why it's a solution, it's why it's the replacement. Right. But if you just think about that, those things, those concepts are hard to understand. And you can't just magically go from not knowing that to knowing it. Right. Um, yeah. But, but once you do, you don't think about Bitcoin as a hedge. And if that is the end state where people end up, Bitcoin is not a hedge, it's just a better form of money. Yeah. It's going to work better for me then um, that's where we need to get to people to. And in my experience, it, it's created some confusion and that when people are kind of, I think if they're trying to explain Bitcoin and they're not having success, they're like, well, just, you know, it's a hedge. You know, what if things go wrong? Uh, and then, you know, that kind of set people back. So. Yeah, yeah, this reminds me, I think this is something you said a long time ago that added, when you don't understand Bitcoin so well, you know, you're at an intellectual distance from it, it seems counterintuitive. But once you understand Bitcoin pretty well, it's hyperintuitive. Yeah. And it's really just this idea, right? Just humans want a really certain place to store purchasing power across time. And that certainty is rooted in the credibility of monetary properties. And so with Bitcoin, we have the most credible set of monetary properties we've ever had, at least for the past 14 years. And it seems like, and I think you conclude your piece of this, right? Like we always talk about the old adage of the two certainties in life, death and taxes. 
well, we, now we have a third one, right? 21 million. Yeah. And that's really what, that's the centerpiece to this whole movement. It's like just the fact that we have perfectly integral money supply for the first time in history. Yeah, and that is like, I think when I, my, my when I introduced Graduates and Suddenly as a series, I said that it was like, a, I think my the line was that Bitcoin is the opposite of intuitive and then mm-hmm. it starts to become intuitive and over time it becomes hyper-intuitive. Mm-hmm. And if people, you know, because a lot of Bitcoiners like, how can't, you know, how, how come people can't see this? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to go back to that place of, you know, before Bitcoin started to click for you to realize just how intuitive, unintuitive yes. it was. And if you accept that Bitcoin and money, money, before then applying mm. it to Bitcoin and being able to evaluate whether Bitcoin is money, if you accept that that money and as a derivative Bitcoin is the opposite of intuitive mm-hmm. and that very few people in the world understand it, to then expect Bitcoin to be a hedge to a dollar inflation, mm-hmm. like those two things are not logically consistent and it just has to be a journey. Mm -hmm. And as each person picks up the book and starts to evaluate it, it will inevitably click, Mm -hmm. but there's no, there's no shortcut to that. Yes. Um, But it does become the least uncertain and it does become the one thing. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't Mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. I don't know what, like everything is on a spectrum more uncertain than death taxes 21 million. Yes. What a weird time in history, Ren, right? It's the ultimate safe haven asset by design, but it trades like the ultimate risk on asset right now. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it feels like a huge advantage for us to be able to. It, it is as- information asymmetry. Yeah. And that just because these are the fundamentals, it doesn't mean that um, people do not behave in ways that are inconsistent with that, mm-hmm. right? It does not mean that it's like, if one out of a thousand people understand Bitcoin, and I think that's conservative, that does not mean that one out of a thousand people are buying Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. It might be one out of a hundred, or it might be, you know, one out of two at this point, or, or two out of five. But often what happens is people buy Bitcoin irrationally, and then they sell Bitcoin irrationally. Yeah. If they find the signal, now they have information asymmetry, mm-hmm. and they can... Um, be in a position to both preserve their wealth or to weather all storms or to determine how to behave depending on what is happening with the present purchasing power of Bitcoin. If not, it's just, you know, basically, you know, the way I describe it in the book or in the book, but in the, uh, in the piece is if you're not anchored to that fundamental, if you do not understand why Bitcoin is a fundamental value Mm -hmm. to the world or to you, then as it's whipping around up and down, it's like someone wandering through the forest blind or out at sea without a lighthouse to anchor to. Mm-hmm. It's just a violent chaos and you can't tell what's up or down or north right. or south. Yeah. Yeah, you're so over-indexing on that dollar perception, right? Yeah. So you can get shaken out of your position if you're absent conviction. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a real trip and obviously changes the way you see the world as you go into this rabbit hole. Um, yeah, my world kind of, in, in certain ways, it slows everything down. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, I literally use Bitcoin as an anchor to say, okay, you know, does anything cause me to change or, you know, did anything happen in the world cause me to question or did it impair Bitcoin's ability to mm-hmm. credibly fix the 21 million supply? If, if not, 
nothing has changed and this other thing is the thing that that has been volatile yes um and and it's just i think in the way that most people probably feel because of everything that's happening with the dollar and inflation is that uh, and the general volatility in the world not like a just financial assets but just it feels yeah. like we're at Cultural this tipping point culturally yeah. um that uh that it feels very chaotic like mm-hmm. things are kind of constantly moving mm-hmm. around and like once people see bitcoin they're like ah oh, like hmm. like everything's kind of yeah fades and it yeah. doesn't mean that there isn't volatility the outside world and that you don't have to deal with that but but it helps you explain it, it helps you understand the machinations um, and it helps you kind of anchor to, to determining individual actions too. Yeah, yeah, I found that to be very clarifying, that point in your piece. It, no matter what's happening in the world, you just say, well, did this event affect any of the consensus rules or integrity of Bitcoin in any way? If the answer is no, then we'll just go on about your business, TikTok yeah. next block. Um, that's a peace of mind that we ha- that has not been available to people historically, right? I mean, you could, I guess bury gold in your backyard, and get some semblance of that, but even then, you don't know with as high of a degree of certainty as you do with Bitcoin that the thing is still 21 million, you know, every 10 minutes, hash rate, globally auditable, all of these um, aspects of certainty that we could not achieve with any other monetary standard. And that's really, I think in, in essence, what makes Bitcoin the best money. It's just the most certain asset in human history. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it is a process of people figuring that out of like, this is the place where I need to focus. Mm-hmm. And then people have to question like, wait, okay, there's a lot packaged there. Mm-hmm. I need to understand why that is so relevant. Mm-hmm. Like the why, and I talk mm-hmm. about this piece too, it's like understand why it would be so significant if there was this digital asset that that, ha- that had a finite supply or a form of money that had a finite supply. Because, you know, like we mentioned several times here, it's like the very concept of money is, is unintuitive. Mm-hmm. and once they realize the significance of that, mm. then they can start to frame the the ca- causal relationship to why the entire w- rest of the world will have to adopt it. Yeah. And then they're in a position to be like, okay, did anything change this? Event one, two, three, counterparty failure, five, mm. six, seven. Mm. If I do not know that, I cannot evaluate Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I can only be subject to emotion. Right. You know, an emotion that 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 is exposed to being feed on for a lack of understanding. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I think we've got a mining summit to get to now. So, Parker, thank you for doing this. Uh, Where can people find find you on the Internet? Uh, So Twitter, Parker A. Lewis, Uh, my content uh, that I'll be putting out, at least written content, will be on Bitcoiner.ghost.io. It'll also be republished on Unchained.com on the Unchained.com blog. So. Those are uh, those are probably the three best places, and appreciate you having me on the show, and also look forward to to being back here in Nashville. Look forward to the the, the summit today, but also it's a special community here, and uh, and, and the campus here at Bitcoin Park is amazing. Yes, it is. Great to see you, dude. Thank you. Appreciate it.